our last message in the book of Ephesians. It's been a good year as we've explored and dove deep into this book that I think has been tremendous to help us understand what it means to be in Christ and to walk with Christ. Now, there's something about endings and conclusions and goodbyes. Um, When those occur, we tend to get more personal than at other times, don't we? Uh, More relational, even at times intimate, uh, with our words and with our feelings. For instance, Julie and I, since we've been married, have never lived close to her parents or mine. And so when we visit her parents, uh, now her mother, in Michigan, we go to Tennessee to see mine, the goodbyes are usually longer, they're a little more intense than when we say goodbye to our kids who live 17 houses away. Neither's better or worse, it's just different. Our kids come over a lot, we see our grandkids, and so buys are pretty normal. See you later, see you tomorrow, see you next hour, see you next meal, just whatever comes out, right? Just that they leave, and, or we go by their house and we leave. But in Michigan and Tennessee, we'll gather in the garage and the driveway, the front door, and they'll pray for us. We hug. They're long hugs. We express uh, blessings and wishes. And there's just a very communal, familial, intensely personal time there. That's what you do when you get to endings and closings and goodbyes. And so the similar things happen here in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul is getting more and more personal getting more relational, and and we could even say in some ways intimately personal. Notice with me, in fact, in these last four verses how this occurs. He mentions names. He talks about different groups. He expresses blessings. What Paul does here in these final four verses of Ephesians 6 is he just moves to a personal moment with those with whom he has a spiritual relationship. Now, this isn't to say that this is the first time in the book that the letter gets relational. It isn't. In fact, I would contend with you that Ephesians is a very relational, personal book. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about our vertical relationship, right, with Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 talk about that relationship or those relationships we have in the church. And so there are already, throughout the book, from a 10,000-foot view, Two relationships in view. The first one is ours in Christ. Say those two words with me. In Christ. And the next are those in the church. Say with me. In the church. And so as we come to this final section, this closing sign-off, I believe Paul maintains his relational, personal bent, but increases it. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Follow with me and we begin in verse 21. Before I read, let me just show you what we'll see emerge from this text, and that is this simple truth, that in God's family, relationships matter. You're going to see this just surface over and over in this personal closing. And these relationships are in a specific order, the vertical one first, the horizontal ones next. Let me show you how it comes through in this text. We'll revisit this truth, don't worry, but here's the text for us from which we draw this. Verse 21. So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. And by the way, this is um, the word I, the pronoun here. It's used three times. Paul used the pronoun me back in verse 19. So you can already see he's moving to a more personal tone, can't you? Me and I. He's just getting more relational. So, So that you may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful 
minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Verse 23, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the final verse, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let me give you three specific and I would say smaller observations about relationships. And I want to qualify by saying spiritual relationships in Christ in the church. These spiritual relationships that will help us again kind of see the larger truth in play here. First of all, spiritual relationships are used by God for mutual encouragement. It's not hard to spot this in the first two verses, is it? In fact, notice the last phrase of verse 22, would you? Tychicus was sent so that he would encourage the hearts of the Ephesian believers. His aim was first and foremost to bring comfort and courage to these Ephesian believers through news about Paul. Do you see your text there? Paul said that he would tell them how he was doing and, and what he was doing. This would be delivered through Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister. And I think by implication, we can say this, that when Tychicus would return, Lord willing, he would bring news to Paul about the Ephesian believers and those in that region. So there's a, a mutual encouragement happening here. Tychicus takes news to the, to the church. They send news back to Paul and they're both encouraged. That's one of the things that we experience in spiritual relationships. Now, maybe you're wondering, who is this guy with a funny name, Tychicus? Well, he was an Asian believer. He was on Paul's team. We find this out from Acts 24. You make it say Paul's staff. You make it say Paul's volunteer team, his advanced team. It's just a group of folks that would accompany Paul. They were willing to uh, be sent to churches. They were willing to come from churches. And they just worked with and ministered with Paul. That's why he's called here a a beloved brother and faithful minister or a faithful servant. I think a good phrase that describes Tychicus is the phrase trusted messenger. And here's why. When Paul says here that he sent him, do you see that in verse 22? The word sent there is the word apostle. So though Tychicus may not have been an official apostle, he did have apostle-like functions, didn't he? He was sent. He was trusted to deliver news and to bring back news. This was a spiritual relationship Paul had with this man. We see that in the phrase, in the Lord. So they were close, and they were tight, and he could be trusted to encourage the Ephesian believers. Interestingly, this is one of the main things that we're to do towards each other in the church. It's to encourage each other. I say that to you because that is expressly mentioned in Hebrews 10, 25. You know, sometimes when we hear about encouragement, we think about a, a variety of things, and I'm sure there are a variety of ways to encourage, but the word isn't really abstract. It's not designed to just kind of have a, a, a general kind of like, well, whatever you want to do. It's designed to, to imply that we come alongside someone and put courage in them. And the Bible says in Hebrews 10, 25, that actually this should happen when you meet together. In fact, let me go a step further. The Bible says this is one of the reasons that you should not neglect meeting together because encouragement is such a high priority that you don't want to just say, well, I'm not going today. Yeah, I'm not going to show up. I'll just sit, I'll sit this one out. Do you realize that 
meeting together is one of the prime moments in which we encourage each other. That's what the scriptures say to us. Don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but, but encourage one another. And even more as you see the day approaching. So here's the sense I get from the text. As we encourage each other when we meet and to meet, then we kind of help each other stay in the race long term. You know, it's much like a, 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 a log. If it's away from the fire, it goes out a lot quicker, doesn't it? But you put a log with other hot burning logs in the fire and it stays lit longer. Hey, we need each other, church. And we need to meet together so encourage each other for that. But watch this. When you're here, actually do that as well. Be involved in mutual encouragement. So here's a question for you. Have you encouraged someone today? Let me even narrow that down even more. Have you encouraged someone since you walked in this building? Since you've been here gathered for encouragement and to do it more as the day approaches, have you done that? Remember, this building is not the church, but let's be honest, the church has gathered in this building. And when we're all together, let's make the most of that opportunity and encourage each other. Have you done so? Before you leave one of our exits, will you encourage someone today? I saw that a lot this week, both with words and in action. Last Sunday after the 11 o'clock service, I was down here just praying with some folks. One of them was a single mom, somewhat distraught just from the Lord's work in her life in a good way, just emotional. And as I was talking with her, there's some women around and they just jumped right in and said, Todd, we'll pray with her. It was so beautiful to watch these women just uh, begin to pray over her and with her. This week, we got a call from one of our small group leaders. They were aware of someone in their group sick and their whole family was sick and has been sick for a while and we were checking in on that and the small group leader called and said hey don't worry we got food covered for them we'll take care of it all I mean what an encouragement for us and for that family this week two families called and said Todd we're bringing a card to you and we want you to just give it to a needy family I don't know what's in the card but it's an anonymous card from someone in our church to say hey here's a needy family they said we trust our leadership you know who they are can you make sure this gets to a needy family? We said, sure, gladly. Love being that conduit of encouragement, amen, from someone in our church who says, we'll just help. I watched a small group yesterday uh, provide food for someone in their group, I think their leader, whose mother passed. And the, the mother who passed and the father who's still here, they're not, really in our, they're not even in our church. But the small group was so concerned and wanted to help with the situation. They just went ahead and made the meal anyway for the funeral. And just seeing uh, time after time of people in our church, our small groups, individuals, in word and in action, encouraging one another. And I want to thank you for that. That's exactly what Tychicus was sent to do, to encourage that church. I was wondering this week, what stops encouragement? Like, why aren't more people encouraging others? Why don't I do it more? Why don't you do it more? Like what, what, what hinders encouragement? And there probably are a variety of things. But the one that I thought of, and one that I think probably is a great hindrance would be unforgiveness. I mean, when, when I'm tempted to not forgive, to hold a bitter root, to cling to some kind of resentment, you know, the last thing to come out of my mouth is, enc is encouraging words. And so I just got to think, and I wonder if there are folks in our church who are, who are struggling to forgive 
And so that's why they're not very encouraging. They feel like perhaps they've been wronged by someone else. They've been hurt. There's a pain point, so it makes them turn inward. I'm not minimizing that, but I'm saying it, it shouldn't stop you from forgiveness. Let me, in, excuse me, from encouragement. Let me encourage you to forgive so that you can encourage someone else. Encouragement is that important. It's one of the things we do as church members. Notice the second observation, would you, in this text. Not only is uh, encouragement a mutual result of spiritual relationships, but spiritual relationships exist in degrees. I find this quite intriguing. Let me see if I can break this out for you just briefly. It, it, it starts with the word Tychicus. Do you circle that in your Bible? Would you do that, please? And then go down to verse 23, circle the word brothers, and then just circle the word all in verse 24. And I would draw a line between the two, the three actually. Tychicus, brothers, and all. And what you'll see, and just in, this, in your mind, picture this. There's, there's, a, a, there's a set of concentric circles happening here. Paul knew Tychicus, an individual by name, was very close to him, loved him, called him a faithful minister, a beloved brother. And then he identifies this other group called the brothers. So he goes from individual to group. He doesn't name them in this text. They are, by the way, uh, a set of people who seem to accompany Paul, help him. Um, and so they're known several times in Acts with the definitive article, the brothers. And so you could track that through Acts. So here's this group called the brothers. Follows this mention of an individual. And then there's this reference to all. Is it all of the church at Ephesus in the city? Would it be all the believers in the region? I don't know. But it's a group Paul really didn't know personally, but he knew they existed and he wishes them God's grace. In all three of these circles, Paul is, we'll say, related and connected, but he doesn't know all of them to the same degree. So it shows me something, that spiritual relationships exist in degrees. I don't think this is the main point of the passage, but I think it's an intriguing observation that sometimes can trip churches. Because we would prefer to think, no, we're just one big circle. But actually, no one has the capacity to live in one big circle with endless relationships. Nobody does. Now, you could nod your head and say, no, we do, but you're just fooling yourself. That's not real life. I can prove it to you. You don't live that way in your family. Hopefully, every husband here gives more time to their wife than they do their kids. You should. Hopefully you give more time to your kids than you do the neighbor's kids. You should. So sometimes we act like we have endless capacity and can give uh, the same amount of time to every relationship. But the truth is you can't and you shouldn't because ex relationships, especially spiritual ones, they exist in degrees. And I personally think this is a good thing that we can be unified even if we are segmented. And I think that's where some of the rub comes in. We don't like the word segmented. We think it means disunified or, or, or separated in a bad way, but it, it doesn't. Paul here is just outlining that there's someone he knows individually very well. There's a group he knows he calls the brothers and there's this all that he's not even sure he knows, but, but they're in the same camp. And so, though you're not close to everyone, you are connected to everyone. How? 
because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, here's the horizontal uh, concentric circles of relationships we live in, but they're all connected because of the Lord. So that vertical relationship helps, relationship helps these horizontal ones stay in the right place in the right order. We can be unified and cheer each other on even if we don't know everybody really, really well. Now, you may not want to hear this. I don't think it's a sin thing, but I would say to you, this is one reason some churches stay very small. And perhaps their outreach stays very small. Now, some of it's demographics, some of it's other issues, but there are churches that refuse to live by this principle that relationships can helpfully exist in degrees. And so they want to be close to every single person. You know how many that is? Maybe a dozen or so, maybe 15. And because no one has the capacity to really live in, in one big circle with endless relationships, they refuse to, to structure in such a way that they can be unified and on mission even though they don't know everyone real well. And personally, I would much rather live in a very effective, mission-minded church family and camp where we admit, I don't know everyone real well, but man, we're all connected to Christ. We believe the same thing. We're on the same mission. Let's go for it. And we make really good progress and have a substantial impact. By the way, Jesus did this with his relationships, just to let you know. Process this with me. He was closer to 12 than he was to all the crowds. Did he serve the crowds and minister? He sure did, but he was close to 12. And within the 12, he actually was closer to three. Most folks will tell you the 12 disciples were in four groups of three. So there was four small groups in that group of 12. And he spent more of his time with Peter, James, and John. They were the ones on the Mountain of Transfiguration. They were the ones in the garden on his last night. So if Jesus, track with me here, if Jesus, God in the flesh, knew he needed to prioritize and position and admittedly parse his time with relationships, I would say I definitely need to and you do as well. We're mere mortals. So my admonition to you is this, be comfortable with concentric circles. You don't have the energy or the time for one big one, and it's not a good use of your greatest commodity time. Now the key to challenging this lie is to make sure you, you don't believe this, that difference in time equates to division in spirit. Sometimes we believe that false uh, lie, that, that, that lie, that false notion that well, if I don't get the same amount of time, then, then we must be divided, and we're not. We can have different interests, different levels of relationship, and still be united and on mission. Remember, we may not all be close, but we are all connected, and it's because of Christ. Now, what hinders this? I think the word that hinders this, this reality that we know exists, but sometimes we don't want to embrace in church, what hinders this is selfishness. You see, there's a danger in thinking that, that you have to be in the middle of everything. That's a self-centered view. It's a wrong way to look at things and others. When we think we have to have everything revolve around us or point back to us, uh, we have to have all the attention, all the resources must be spent on us, so to speak. That kind of relationship is bound to go south and end badly. That whole line of thinking is backwards, in fact. We should not be looking inward. We should be looking outward, focused on the needs of others. And this is what Philippians 2, 4 says very clearly. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, one more note about this. 
as you think about this intriguing observation, that spiritual relationships do exist in degrees. Because we know that they're connected to the Lord, we can also know this, they exist in terms of direction as well. Which means the vertical one matters most. The horizontal ones matter second. So just let me plainly captain of the obvious here. Could it be that the reason some struggle within the church with their horizontal relationships is because they're not prioritizing their vertical one. And they've adopted a very carnal perspective. They want all eyes on them. They want attention. They say they want help. What they really want is attention. They want more resources. They want their way. And so it just becomes this, this consistent conversation about how can we keep so-and-so happy and what can we do to make sure you're not upset Could it be that perhaps the reason that's even existing is because there's not a proper alignment vertically? I'm just throwing the question out there for all of us. Because these relationships that exist in degrees, they must exist in the right direction as well. It must be the vertical one first. And God then gives us his heart for others, a heart to serve He gives us his perspective, like Edgar mentioned earlier, John 3, 16, to to love and then to give. That just does not happen naturally. You don't manufacture that kind of posture. That comes from the Lord Jesus Christ as he renews your appetites, as he changes your affections. That vertical alignment, that vertical relationship affects every other relationship. So this has been a little hard to hear. If you've been like, whoa, way to close out the Ephesians series, Todd. If you feel like your toes are a little bruised right now, just ask yourself, well, am I handling my relationships in the right order? Am I approaching the vertical one first with priority? Spending time with the Lord, reading his word in prayer and humility and repentance, and letting that then affect all the other horizontal relationships. I can assure you that's the right order. And when that's in the right order, when that direction is set, then the degrees seem to work out okay. Notice one more quick observation. This is not a long one, but I'm intrigued by this as well. It's that spiritual relationships are fueled by God's character. In these last four verses, we find Paul using lots of words that actually describe what God does and who God is. And he, in essence, says these over the Ephesian believers. Now, I know he's writing them, but as they read them, they're hearing Paul's heart for, for God's character and conduct to blanket them. Notice three things he says. He wishes them and extends them God's peace. That's in verse 23. This is to the brothers. As well as love with faith. I think the primary word here is love. And then, of course, grace in verse 24. So if we were to identify them, we'd say Paul is extending in somewhat of an, in a benediction fashion. He's giving them um, peace and love and grace. Maybe you're wondering what those are. I think the text would tell us this, that peace would be that indescribable calm that God gives to his children in the midst of things that are disturbing and difficult. God's people have a peace that passes all understanding. Amen? That comes from God. So Paul's extending that to them. He extends to them love with faith. Love is desiring the highest good for someone. That's agape love. That's God's love for us. I think he's saying, I'm I'm extending to you God's sacrificial best. 
And why is it coupled with faith? Because it's hard sometimes to see how what's happening in our life is actually God's best for us, that is actually his love expressed to us. So Paul says, I want you to have a settled confidence that because of who God is, he would never give you anything except his best for you. It may not be in the clothes you like, it may not look like what you want it to be, but God will do nothing other than be good and loving for you. He is good and loving. So all that he does and all that is is gonna be poured out on you is good and loving. Have a settled confidence in that. Have faith in God's love for you. And then he wishes for God's grace to be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. That's just unmerited favor. So God just pours out his blessings, not because of you, but in spite of you. Hallelujah, amen, church. Paul's extending this to them. And notice what it produces. The end of the book, the last two words in the SV, he says, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I don't think there he's qualifying or we should say maybe even parameterizing grace. He's not saying, I hope that those who love God in this way get grace. That doesn't even seem like grace. I think what he's saying is this, peace, love with faith and grace will result in love incorruptible. When you see all that God has done in your relationships and in your relationship, vertically, horizontally, that there's peace and love with faith and grace abounding in those, it will produce in you a response of love that is incorruptible. Or a good word here is the word undying. Some translations have the word immortality. And in fact, to be frank with you, some see this perhaps as a reference to God. They, they have it translated a, lot, a little differently. Either way, you're good. There's not going to break our faith in any way. I like the ESV here. I think this is a response to all that God is and does and pours out on us. It then produces in us a long-term, a long-lasting type of love, an unfading, undying love all the way to the end. Why does that exist in us? Because of God's peace, because of God's grace, because of God's love. And that's what Paul expresses in these relationships. And so what I'm hearing, when, I, when I'm reading that, I'm thinking, man, how often do I express that in my relationships? Or is my wording, and is my emphasis really just horizontal? Or when have I said to my friends, to our groups, and God's peace to you in this time, when someone's struggling in a situation, and God wants me to be a conduit of encouragement and comfort, while well, I come alongside with a hand on their shoulder and say, I'm praying God's peace to you in this time. Well, I communicate to them there is a peace that they will not be able to explain, but it is available to God's people. When someone shares their victory and they rejoice with me, well, I say, wow, that's, that's a beautiful gift of God's grace in your life. You see, both in the bad and the good, we can use these words. We can make sure people are pointed vertically, helping them see this is God's work in your life, in our relationship. I think that's what good friends do. I think that's what members of the same spiritual family do. We use our words to point people vertically because we know that's really what fuels relationships. So, as you think about this last section in Ephesians, this is not uncommon to you. Paul often ends and begins with words like this, doesn't he? Grace to you and peace, grace and mercy, God's love to you. Here's an intriguing note. If you were to take 
Ephesians 6, 23 and 24 and put it beside Colossians 4, 7 and 8, which there's a benediction type of uh, wording in that passage. It's not in the end of the book, but it's here in chapter 4. But if you took Colossians 4, 7 and 8 and Ephesians 6, 23 and 24, there are actually 32 words that are in verbatim agreement. Paul not just to these believers, but to other believers. Paul made it a regular practice to speak, to write, and to extend to people the blessings and character of God into the relationships. Does that make sense? And you may think this is strange, but I'm just gonna call on us to, to make sure our language, the best we can, isn't just strictly horizontal. Like, you hang in there, buddy, or a good attaboy. Nothing wrong with that. It's not a sin. I get you. But perhaps it would be better if we were to verticalize our language and say, wow, God's peace to you in this time. I'll walk with you and God will help us. Or, man, that's a beautiful gift of God's grace he gave you. And just keep pointing people vertically. Because the more aligned we are vertically, the, the, the more right this relationship, the more right these relationships. So there's those three smaller observations from these final verses. That spiritual relationships exist for encouragement mutually. They do exist in degrees, like it or not. And they are fueled by God's character. And these three things kind of point to this overall um, um, sense of the text, this principle, this truth that I think is coming through in these last four verses, which is this. Say it with me again, would you? In God's family relationships matter. And in this order, the vertical one, say it, in Christ, then the horizontal ones in the church. I think that's the overall kind of sense you get from this closing. Now, in explaining that and understanding that and just processing that, I had a serious question about Wednesday afternoon and Thursday. Why does Paul end with a focus on church and Christian relationships? Now, maybe you didn't think of that, or maybe you did, but I, I thought it was kind of like, well, shouldn't he end like we do in the locker room? Like, okay, there's the enemy. Let's go out and let's go get it. Let's win the game. Shouldn't it be maybe some kind of military speech. There's the hill. Let's charge it and conquer. Like, that's what I would do, wouldn't you? You're going to rally your team on the goal out there. You'd focus on the vision. You would say, hey, that's what we're here to do. But Paul, kind of after this incredibly delightful book ends really with a very personal appeal to those that he knows, to those that he's aware of, and even to those that he knows believes, but he doesn't really know personally. He just says, hey guys, these relationships matter. So God's peace and grace and love to you, like it seems uh, almost, I don't want to say exclusive, but very focused upon the church. Now, why is that? And then God's spirit and his graciousness reminded me that that's really our best witness. I don't think Paul here at all is ignoring the mission we have. But what good is a mission to make disciples of all nations if you can't get along with each other? What did Jesus say to these 12 disciples that he knew in degrees? He said, by this they will know that you are my disciples when you have love, watch this, for one another. 
Does it not strike you as counterintuitive that Jesus didn't say, they'll know you follow me when you love them? He didn't say that. He said, they'll know you're my disciples when they see how much you love one another. And then it hit me right there. Paul is just echoing the heartbeat of Jesus. He's just modeling in these closing verses what he knows it's gonna take to stay on mission for God. And that is a family, the bride of Christ, relating well to each other. Being in Christ and walking well in the church. And for these two to be properly aligned and functioning well. So then those who aren't in Christ and aren't in the church will see us and think, wow, there's something distinctly different about you. There's something odd. You actually get along, though you're all different. You don't know each other really well. You're not all really close, but yet you can all congregate and worship one God. You serve together for one mission. How in the world does that happen? And we say, because of Christ. So why do I close this whole series in this book with a message directed at the church? Because if we aren't willing to be the church relationally in Christ and to each other, the world will never listen to us. So my closing charge to you, church, is from start to finish, walk in Christ and walk in the church. Commit to these relationships. They matter. Make sure your vertical one is right, that you're in Christ, feet on the gospel, and that there's no unforgiveness and self-centeredness in your horizontal ones, that you're serving each other and loving each other, not everyone to the same degree, but you're connected to everyone on the same mission, and let's walk in those two relationships all the way to the end with love that is undying. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.